Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and today I have some special guest co-hosts, Managing Editor Jocelyn Allison. Hello. And Data Reporter Annie Panzak. Hi, everyone. Guys, I'm so happy to have an all-women show. We are Ooh. so thrilled as well. I've been, I've been waiting for this a long time. The guys have had their turn at that before. A lot of male energy in this room. We're going to have to paint really nice. the room pink, and they're going to come back <laughs> no, no, and no. recognize it. No, no, no. Orange no, is a pink. nice neutral color. It's non-gendered. <laughs> well, there is a reason that I asked you guys to come on today with me, and it's because I want to talk about our annual glass ceiling report. That's where... Uh, your team, Jocelyn, and and you do a lot of the heavy lifting here, Annie, um, look into the progress of women in the law. Mm-hmm. It's always sad for me, guys. So it's a tough one. Yeah. Very slow progress. Very slow progress. And so it's really nice to have you guys here to help me break it all down, mm-hmm. um, bring, you know, a new perspective, hearing straight from you guys about what's going on. Um, and also later in the show, I'm going to bring an interview that I got to do with Candace Beinecke. She's um, a partner at Hughes Hubbard Reed. She was one of the first women to lead a major New York law firm. So I'll hear from somebody who really succeeded to hopefully counterbalance the sad numbers we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, Annie, tell me some of the top line things we found this year when we were looking at how women are faring in right. the legal profession. So just to set the stage, women have represented at least 50% of law school graduates since 2016. Yep. So we're actually more than half now. Um, but in law firms, that's not the case. And at each level of the law firm, as you get higher and higher up that law firm ladder, that percentage gets smaller and smaller. Um, so in our report this year, we found that overall, women attorneys at law firms are about 36.4%. At the non-partner level, they're 45.5%, so pretty close to that law school number. But then you go up, you climb up, and at the equity level, they're 21.5%, and that number um, hasn't really moved in the six years that we've reported. Yeah, we've. It's, I mean, it's moved. It's gone up, but it's but very slow. We use numbers like incremental and like right. minimal growth, that kind of stuff. Because we've talked about this on Pro Se the past couple of years. We've done this report. How long now? Six, six years. Six years. Guys? Yep. And it seems like that's a trend. We that the profession can't seem to buck that it's moving, but it's just glacial. The pace. It's very slow. So we did have some new findings this year. Give me some some bright spots. What did we have? Well, I don't know if this is necessarily bright, but it is something new. I think that one of the reasons that it is so hard to break is that we're seeing that maybe women are leaving once they get to the senior levels. And we have this data this year because we we also surveyed partner promotions. Okay. So we know that women represented 40% of partner promotion classes in 2018. So this can mean two things. One thing is maybe law firms are finally getting it, and maybe we are going to start to see more progress. Or maybe women leave at senior levels. Oh, that's tough. Okay, well. Yeah, because we're really not seeing that that sort of trickle-down effect to the, the equity ranks and the overall partner ranks. It's that it's still incredibly... Right. Even though this past year women represented 40% of partner promotion classes, at the actual partner rank, women are only a quarter of partners. Yeah, that's. I want to get into a bit with you guys um, what you think some of the reasons for this could be. Like, why is this so intractable? Why is the pace so slow? Um, what's going on? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think um, one of the big reasons that um, people always point to for why these numbers are so skewed 
as women sort of move up the ranks is the structural issues at law firms. Um, if you think about it, you know, it's so relationship based. Sure. Um, relationships that attorneys have with clients, relationships that, you know, partners have with associates. And, the, you know, it has been the, – the men have kind of been entrenched for a long time. So is this really that old trope of, like, deals are made out on the golf course and all the fellas are out mm. doing that? I mean, I think some of it is. There's still a lot of that. I, I hate that. I, yeah. I hate that. I yeah, think, right. like, you know, mentorship uh, is so important. And yeah. I think – one of the firms that we spoke to had said, you know, they sort of credited their um, their numbers to the fact that they had been really focused on creating mentorship opportunities for women. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think, like, I was actually thinking about this on the train this morning because I was thinking about that whole, like, you know, um, golf, like going golfing right. thing, mm-hmm. right? And I was trying to imagine, like, an analogous situation for for women like what's a women like a women only thing yeah and so what i came up with was like imagine if you had like a book club with some of your female co-workers and they would come over to your house in the afternoon and like drink wine and talk about books right and then imagine that there being like one man there yeah yeah Yeah. that's weird right 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 so i I mean probably that's how women feel when they're at events like this and then you just kind of like stand there awkwardly and you're like i think we're gonna yeah. I'm going to go now. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like um, every year we talk about this, we talk about the big numbers, talk about how hard it is for there to be movement. And then we hear from firms that say like, well, we've tried this program and that program, but there must be something else culturally holding people back because the progress is so slow. You would think um, law firms clearly know this is an issue. They know yeah. they need to retain these women. Um, but they haven't managed to crack it in any real clear way. I think another big issue is just, you know, how the compensation is structured. Um, <clears throat> we did actually, we did kind of a fun thing or what passes for fun at Law360 with one of our stories. Um, the graphics team did a really cool visual where we um, took 12 of the lawsuits that have been filed over the last couple of years against law firms yeah. alleging gender bias. And did a text analysis to see what words came up most frequently across uh, all of the complaints. And the number one thing was pay, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's obviously a huge part of it. Um, you know, the, the Yeah, we talked about this a ton. We've talked about firms like um, Jones Day that has this, like, opaque structure about mm-hmm. paying women. And they've been sued over that. Um, we've talked about uh, just any number of them. Chadburn and Park was the, one of the big front runners of women suing their firm for inequality in that way. Mm-hmm. And it seems like we're just going to continue hearing about these suits. There's no shortage of them. I mean, the other thing, too, obviously, I think, and Annie can probably speak to this more, but is that, you know, at the time that a lot of women are having children, say, like in their early 30s, is the time when they're they're on the path to making partner. And those things are happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when they come back, they struggle to um, get back on the same footing yeah. as their male colleagues. And unless the firms are, you know, proactively adjusting for that reality, then they just sort of naturally fall behind. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about that. Because Annie, in addition to crunching a lot of our numbers for this report, you also do some, some video storytelling for us. And one of the things that was really interesting this year, um, and you can tell us more about it, you went and and stayed with a few women um, at, in the, at their homes that right. have young children, mm-hmm. saw what their life was like. 
uh, trying to juggle it right, all. Right, right. So, so first of all, the idea for this video came from the from our report last year, and we were talking to women who lead law firms, and all of these women told us at least one story about how hard it was to be a young mother and on a partnership track, things like having to create their own maternity leave if they even were given maternity leave. So I went back and you know, reconnected with those firms and found two women that work at those firms and, you know, just wanted to get their perspective of yeah. what, what's going on. And I think what was probably most surprising to me is that there's so many programs out there now for mothers, at least at these firms. So so these are Morgan Lewis and DLA Piper. Um, well, it's th- good. At least they're awakening to the reality that there needs to be some adjustments here. Right, right. Things like work from home policies, backup daycare, reduced work after maternity leave. Something really interesting is that Morgan Lewis actually has a program to ship breast milk home for mothers when they're traveling oh, for right. work. Because w- attorneys have to travel all the time for various reasons. Right. And it's like that's such an expensive cost because it's got to be on dry ice. Yeah. So, so just all of these new unique ideas. There's also some difficulties that are just structural in law firms, I think. Things like, um, you know, creating an imbalance when women go on maternity leave and they maybe are, are out longer than their male colleagues and then coming back and they don't have as many hours as their male colleagues. Right. So if somebody's evaluating who gets promoted to partner that year, um, or even once you are partner, who gets the biggest compensation that year, a lot of it that really comes down to the numbers of right. how many hours did you work, how many hours did you bill. Yeah, the, the billable hour is, is held on a pedestal at law right. firms. And that's can be a problem for women. But I think overall, the the message I got from at least these two moms was, you know, the the ability to talk openly about this at their firms was huge. And hearing it from from the top, you know, having managing partners and and partners and equity partners all being really open about this. That was like, that's, that's, that's what goes on to associates ears and they're hearing that and then they feel comfortable talking about it and they feel comfortable bringing issues up that are happening to them and it creates a culture where there's an open dialogue. I think one of the things that struck me in watching your video Annie was just how normal this all seems when you're watching these women. I mean they Mm -hmm. seem like any other working mom who's trying to balance things out but um, it has such a big impact because of what we're talking about with the structure of how law firms evaluate people that just everyday activities and the things you need to do to balance your work and life are tougher in the law firm context. Yeah, I think the the point that you made earlier about the change needing to come from the top is a Mm -hmm. really good one. And um, I, you know, we've seen that also actually in the data that it does make a difference when law firms are led Mm -hmm. by women. Um, the last couple of years, we've looked at this and said, well, what if we just, you know, picked out the law firms that had like a female managing partner or female uh-huh. chair? Which is very few. It's like 14 percent. Right. And the the reality is, though, in the number of um, all of the women on the firm, the number of women who are partners and the number of women who are equity partners, you know, as a share of the total is higher at those firms. So, for example, you know, I um the percentage of women who are equity partners at firms that are led by a man is 20.6%, but that percentage goes up to 26.1% at firms that are led by women. Yeah, and that sounds like a small number, but if you think about how the more we have women in these leadership ranks, the more that will grow, it actually makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also want to talk about something you touched on there. Uh, there's sort of structural things holding people back, but also some of this implicit bias that we're sort of talking about with like guys out on the golf course and that seems pretty overt. Mm -hmm. But there's there's other more subtle things that you're not seeing 
we did some reporting on that. What kind of things do we mean when we talk about implicit bias that might be holding women back in the industry? Well, uh, our one of our reporters, Natalie Rodriguez, did another sort of fun story um, about, you know, a quiz, kind of test your own bias. And I found it very interesting. One of the things that I hadn't thought about before was even really seemingly innocuous things like writing in a job ad that you're looking for somebody competitive. Mm -hmm. Even that word competitive can send this subliminal message to women readers sometimes. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's that's not for me. Right. Uh, And that's not something that I think most people think about. Right. Yeah. Some of these moms were also telling me about when firms phrase all these policies for mothers as accommodations, it's much more negative than phrasing as flexibility. Right, sure, because accommodation makes it sound like, oh, you're getting this special like you treatment. Need, you need this thing to do you're your job. You're not as strong as the right. male counterpart kind right. of uh, vibe there. Right. Another interesting thing, um, the National Association for Women Lawyers did a study, and they found there's this uh, concept of like bias interrupter processes, right? So, What um, does that mean? Yeah, I know. It's so <laughs> jargony, right? Um, it's, real, it's real stuff, though. I, and actually, a lot of the stuff when you write about it, you're like, oh, training is so boring and like reading about that stuff and undergoing training and writing about it. But when you really think about it, it's really true. Like things with um, a, a, an easy example is interview questions. So making sure that you're asking all of the job candidates the same interview question. Sure. And as somebody who has done many interviews with job candidates, this is a very real thing. I mean, somebody walks in the door and you see them and maybe you have something in common with them. You went to the same school or you're from the same town. Uh, and then suddenly you start talking about that. And mm-hmm. then maybe you talk about the work stuff. And then at the end, you just have this impression. like You remember that. This person. Yeah. And yeah. this is funny because actually. well, Yeah. I, you interviewed me when I applied here. I did. And, and we were talking about Lake Winnipesaukee. Yes, exactly. Where I worked at summer camp. And I was like, that's it. She's hired. <laughs> Instant connection. No, just okay. Kidding. So sometimes the implicit bias works <laughs> right. in your favor. But most of the time, it's actually a bad thing. So, yeah, I see what you're saying, though. It's... Um, Human interaction is built on connections, and so mm-hmm. um, it's very easy for men to have quick connections with other men. It's maybe harder for um, you know an older, more senior male partner to firm to have a quick connection with a young woman. Right. And the study that Nall did found that um, these firms, you know, 80, 89% of firms uh, reported that at the recruiting phase, they would institute these bias interrupting procedures, like mm-hmm. making sure that they had standardized interview questions. But then when it came to actually the promotional phase to equity partner, only 54% of firms said that they did the same thing. So you can see how, you know, that's just one way as, you know, things go along um, that women can be at a disadvantage. Uh, so I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it seems like we're building this portrait here after many years of these sort of dismal numbers that it, you need more than just policies, but you, you do need those. Mm-hmm. But you also need some of what we're talking about where it's uh, digging even deeper into why the policies aren't pushing forward the numbers. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, this all's doom and gloom as it is every year talking about this, but there are a few areas of the law that women are doing better what, what are those? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, certainly in-house, uh, the percentages of women who are uh, chief legal officers at corporations has been going up. Sure. Fairly steady, steadily in recent years. I think for 2018, the Association of Corporate Counsel put that figure at about 37%, which is obviously much higher than what we're seeing at law firms. Mm-hmm. Um, also in academia, it's much higher. 35% of uh, law school deans are women. 
Um, Those numbers are better, and they are better, bright but they're points, not but they're not. I best. mean, we're yes, because we said at the top of the show, Annie let us know that more than fifty percent of women uh, or of graduates of law schools are women. So. Right. I won't be happy until we can finally have a podcast where when we, we break say, that glass ceiling, yeah, right? I, I mean, it seems so silly to say it that way. We'll but be quite elderly at that time, I think. That's unfortunate, and I hope that some law firms can are listening to this and realize that it's going to take more than just policies. It's also going to take a change in the culture and in the way people are approaching this Absolutely. issue to really make a difference. Right, and I think the important thing to think about too is that it is about more than just you know, representation, right? The numbers of women being equal to the numbers of men. I think it's about making sure that the opportunities are equal too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that so. also pushes women to the next points in their career. I mean, if they have better opportunities, they're in a better position to actually get the promotion to partner and then equity partner. Right. Yeah. Guys, thanks so much for coming to talk with me about this today. Thank thanks. you for having us. Thank you. For our main interview today, I had the chance to talk to Candace Beinecke, senior partner at Hughes Hubbard & Reed. Candace sat down with me right after she received a Law Firm Leadership Award at the annual Burton Awards held in the Library of Congress. If you listened to the show last week, we did the whole show from the Burtons, and I was able to grab Candace after the award ceremony, but as the gala was starting, so there was a band playing, and you might hear a little bit of that in the background. Here's the interview. I'm joined by Candace Beinecke, the senior partner at Hughes Hubbard & Reed. And I want to talk to you about what it's like to be a trailblazing woman in the law, because we often hear stories about the real challenges. But in as far back as 1999, you became the first female head of a major New York law firm. And I want to know your secrets. How did you do that? How did you achieve that in a male-dominated profession? Well, the first thing I did was I chose well when I chose my firm. I chose a firm where, when I came to Hughes Hubbard at the very beginning of my career, Hughes Hubbard had a, an African-American woman who was a litigator. That doesn't sound so unusual these days, but at the time it was absolutely unheard of. So it gave me a clue that this was a place that had an open mind and a, was creative thinking and would give people opportunities. That woman, Amalia Kearse, who's now a Second Circuit Court of Appeals judge, has said that she, although she was top of her class at Michigan Law Firm, at law school she couldn't get a job in a you know, New York major firm, except for Hughes Hubbard. So I chose well, and it's something to think about. Think about the values of the place that you decide to work before you take a job. So I never felt that being a woman was an impediment at my firm, but there were clients who would ask then, and this shows you how old I am, there were clients who would ask whether they really had to have a girl for a lawyer. So how did you deal with that when, you know, you're new to Hughes Hubbard, you're trying to just prove to people that you, of course, deserve a seat on various teams and staffing situations? How do you get through when someone questions having a girl on the team? Well, the first thing you need are supportive lawyers around you. And the partner in that particular case, uh, the the most visible case that I recall, the partner who was working with me told the client, yes, you do have to have a girl on your team. And yes, you're going to be thrilled that you did. So the support of people who others have trust in is absolutely critical. 
And then I think any woman would tell you that you just have to work doubly hard at that time. Some of my partners have since said to me, do you realize that you prepare a lot more than almost anybody? And I say, yes, because if you come from a place where people weren't trusting that women could be could do the job, you really have to go out of your way to prove that they can. Now that was a long time ago. Now we're in a position where things are different for women and I think nobody would question the ability of women to serve at the top of the profession. I'm glad we've moved to a new place where there's less sort of knee-jerk questioning about women having a seat at the table and having leadership roles. But Law360 does this survey every year, we call it the glass ceiling survey and we go to the US, largest US law firms to see how many women are represented in the profession and at what levels. Every year the progress is, we use the word incremental over and over because it just seems like a very slow creep, especially when you get to the equity partner ranks. Um, do you have any feeling about why it continues to be so hard to get true equality instead of just these tiny little inches up every year? Yeah. The statistics, of course, back up exactly what you're saying. If you uh, look at it from my perspective, you do see a lot of progress. We're no longer in a place where women would, would routinely be denied jobs. I mean, now we're in a place where almost 50% of women in the, prof of the profession are women, and women make up almost 20%, I think, of you know, equity partnership, uh, at least in major firms where those statistics count. But it's certainly been glacial. Yeah, definitely. And it continues to be a problem. There's just no question about it. I think uh, it's a problem not only for women, but particularly for women who have so many roles that they're trying to fulfill at home, in the office, with parents, with children. With, yeah. It's, it's very, very difficult. And I, I do think that any service profession requires extraordinary hard work because if you're not willing to kill yourself for the client, somebody else will. So it's, a, it's an hours-intensive, service-intensive kind of profession. If we could keep these talented women at it long enough to understand the joy of being a real advisor and being at the top of the profession, I think we would, we would have more women with staying power, who decide that they want to make careers of the law. You've led me exactly to my next question, which is it seems like we have this trend of women starting in law school in very high numbers, getting into the profession in relatively high numbers as well, and then it's somewhere along the road, likely because of the pressures you just talked about, they drop out before they get to that sweet spot Absolutely. of having the most knowledge and ascending to high levels at their firms. What is Hughes Hubbard doing to make that not the case at your firm? Are there things you have in place that other people could hear about and uh, perhaps other people are doing it too to, to try to change that trajectory for women? Well, first of all, I'll say, and I think anyone who knows our firm knows this, Hughes Hubbard has always been a place that was open to people who are different, always. I mean, we had the first African-American partner in a major firm. I learned later that we took, we were the only firm that would take a woman graduate of the Yale Law School at the end of World War II when all the men were coming back from the service. Hughes Hubbard was there and would take women. I mean, it's a history that goes on for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I attribute a lot of the value system to Charles Evans Hughes. So you gotta start, as I said before, in a place where the institution is open 
to different issues, to diversity, and to different problems that are faced by you know, people on your staff. Um, having said that, I mean, and acknowledging that we've been working at this for a lot longer than many other places. Before it was counted, we were working on diversity. We still have to improve, and we still are not nearly where we should be, any of us, in the law. And I think the only thing you can do about that is, uh, again, try to be creative about solutions for the particular problems that people face. That's, that's men and that's women. Yeah. It's creating a sense where everyone can thrive, find opportunities that are suited to their lifestyles, to their ability, to their other responsibilities in life, and showing that kind of flexibility of mind that addresses these individual problems people have. One more thing I'll just say is that in order for people to want to stick it out, the young people have to see something they admire. They have to want to be like the leaders of a firm. And so it's incumbent on the leadership of firms throughout and companies and other legal, others in the legal profession to show people why this is a career that is absolutely stupendous, that is creative, that serves, but we've got to show them that instead of complaining about our lifestyle, complaining yeah. about the hard work. And it also sounds like from several answers you've given that a lot of it is if we see more women in the profession, that will attract new entrants into the profession as well and to these big firms because you had a great example of seeing a woman who had a strong role and thinking, Absolutely. oh, if she can do that, I can, I can do this too. Absolutely. I mean, it's also that... You know, you do, if you've had an experience, you tend to be able to share solutions with others. So if you're a woman and you've given birth to children mm -hmm. and you have to worry about that and the, the care of the children and all these kind of issues, or you have a parent who's sick or whatever, if you've been through these experiences and you can share some of the approaches that you came up with, it's just helpful. It's helpful for anybody in a particular situation to have more people like you you know, like, like yourself right. in the firm. So I think it's, it is, the numbers help. The last related thing I wanted to ask you is about pay equity for women attorneys. Um, there's a lot of firms with varying systems of how transparent or not they are about what women are earning. Uh, we hear stories a lot about certain firms that have a bro culture where men are compensated with bonuses and other things um, in ways that are disproportionate to the same kind of work being done by women. How do you think that should be addressed? What should women do when they're starting out in their career? Is, is there something they can do to prevent these things from happening to them? Or does it all have to come top down from law firm leadership? Well, there's no question that law firm leadership has a really important role to play in ferreting out the reality of who's really making contributions. I will say that I've talked a lot to compensation consultants, and they say almost uniformly that they'd rather have a woman on the other side. When they're representing, say, a company hiring someone, mm -hmm. they'd much rather have the hiree be a woman because they're never as demanding. They always are thinking about whether they're really contributing and they're never as aggressive about their own compensation. So I think it's incumbent on women in a totally constructive and objective way to... Uh, to get rid of the fear of talking about what they've accomplished mm -hmm. and not to make it, you know, not to think that they're bragging, that they're being inappropriate, uh, because if we don't hear it in the loveliest way, in the most constructive way, 
you can't know everything on a compensation committee of a firm, for example, or as a partner. You can't. You can know who you, the people you deal with directly, but you can't know everything. So I think management has a big role to play here in being vigilant, but also women have to learn to speak about their contributions in the right way and to make it known to people who want to compensate them fairly, but don't always know the facts. So my final question for you is, if there are female associates or law students listening to this right now, which I know there's probably many, um, what would you tell them as they're starting out in their careers about how to make inroads as women in the law? I guess the first piece of advice I would give anyone is find an area of the law that you love in which you think you can excel. That's number one. Then I would say, uh, figure out what your greatest skill set is and use it. Don't try to pattern yourself after someone else. I learned early on that I was much better at a sort of constructive, consensual approach than I was at mirroring some of the people who were more difficult yellers and screamers, you know, right. it just didn't work for me. I got much further by, by being thoughtful, understanding, consensual than I did by the other approach. Now, other, for others, that's not the case. No, if the clothes don't fit, don't wear them. That's my advice. I love that. Figure out your own style, what works for you, and go for it. And if you do that, and if you have found an area of the law that you love, you are going to be successful. The other thing I would say is mentors help. I've had great mentors, most of the men, of course, because there were very few women around when I started. But mentors, someone who really cares about you, who can look at what you're doing objectively and give you advice is worth so much. So find one. That's great advice, Candace. Thanks so much for being with me today. You're I really so appreciate You're so welcome. It. It's a pleasure. Thank you. wrap up our show for today. I want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our special guests this week, Jocelyn Allison, Annie Panzak, and Candace Beinecke, and contributing reporters, Natalie Rodriguez, Jackie Bell, and Amanda James. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about our annual glass ceiling report, please visit our website at law360.com podcast. Hit subscribe wherever you're listening to the show and leave us a written review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks, and see you again next week.